up and we're going to sing together. Just sing praises to our God. He's so great.
Okay, so this morning we're going to do a new song. Um, it's called Stand in Your Love. So I'll just encourage you, if you've heard it before, sing it out, sing it proud. It's all about um, standing against fear and just staying strong and um, trusting in God's faithfulness to provide and just um, knowing that you are loved and that you are cared for. And because of that, we don't have to fear. tries to roll over my bones When sorrow comes to steal the joy I own When brokenness and pain is all I know Oh, I won't be shaken No, I won't be shaken Oh, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I Stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Amen. Shame no longer has a place to hide, and I am not. Doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my f
never stop, never stop working. Never stop, never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Kids can go back to their classes and everything. You guys, turn, say hi to one another, say what you did over the weekend, that was kind of fun. We're gonna have Chris come back, do announcements. Okay, all right, good morning. Everybody, take a seat. Hey, welcome, Glenworth. And my name's Chris, and uh, just got back from a, a sabbatical. Glad to be back and appreciate all of your support of uh, our pastors doing this on a periodic basis. And I certainly do feel rested and uh, got a lot of great learning done. Um, it was only five weeks, so it felt like a long time to me, but I'm sure. From your perspective, it just, just flew, so thanks, George. Well, good morning to all of you. We got a special service this morning. Um, I want to welcome any of you that are our guests this morning. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome if you're watching online. And uh, if you're just new to Linworth, we want you to get some, in, to feel free, get some information about us. Stop at our welcome desk after the service. We've got a gift bag we'd love to give you with some information. Uh, about who we are and uh, about how to get more involved and engage at Linworth. Uh, we want to bless you in that way. And um, there's a connect card in front of you there in the little basket in the seat in front of you. If you could fill that out for us and you can drop that in one of the offering baskets um, after the service out in the lobby. So we'd love to hear from you and I'd love to, love to again, get you involved and get you engaged in, um, in our church. 
Um, we're going to have a special announcement here in a moment. I just want to mention a couple things. One is remember, uh, Discover Life is quickly coming. Um, I just love this aspect of our church life. It's been so life-giving the last two or three years. We use the Alpha videos, uh, the first three, in order to introduce our friends to who Christ is. And what is this gospel that we believe? So again, I know we've been telling you a lot about it, but we want to encourage you to pick up these cards. Uh, they're uh, around the welcome desk area. And again, include a friend, plan on coming, and um, we'd love to have you. It's going to begin here in just a few, in just a few weeks. Again, you can look online and get all the information for uh, Discover, Discover Life. And then finally, in a couple weeks, we're going to have our uh, next celebration service coming at the end of this month, the fifth Sunday. And I want to particularly emphasize if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made a commitment to Jesus, we want to encourage you to represent that commitment in baptism. Baptism is the sort of introductory way that we uh, declare to ourselves and declare to others that we are beginning to follow Jesus. So uh, let us know through the office or let us know in the connect card if you are interested in baptism. There also is a, uh, a, a, a brochure on our welcome table that explains baptism and what it means here at um, Limworth. So with that, Rich, you want to come up along with uh, Lisa and uh, Caleb and Alex. Give those guys a hand if you want. okay. You don't have to give me a hand. You see me too much up here anyway. So, uh, but if you are new this morning, my name is Rich. I'm the family pastor here at Linworth, and we do have a special announcement for you this morning. Um, so let me set this up a little bit. You know, obviously we've come out of um, a very challenging time last few years with the whole COVID thing. Wash your mouth out. Don't say the word. Okay. But, and, <laughs> and like uh, most churches, it's created some very unique challenges in ramping back up to all the ministries and doing the things that we did before and working back into uh, the rhythms and some of the rhythms that we've had before. But uh, first off, I just wanted to thank you, church, because we have been able to restart our ministries here at Linworth. We've been able to hit the ground running, and it's because you have volunteered. However, However, pay attention to that word, we are not there all the way. And we do have some critical areas that need to be filled. And that's the reason for this announcement this morning. And uh, so what I'm going to do here is uh, we have uh, three of our ministries that are probably have the most critical needs at this point. And I'm going to step aside here in a second and let them talk here. But they have hopes and they have dreams of what they want to see their ministries to be. And so they're going to talk to you a little bit about that. And, uh, but before you do, I have a little quip for you, although what I'm about to say is kind of more of a towards a children's ministry specific. It gives you a little bit of a sense of what ministry leaders, uh, gathering volunteers feels like. It has been said that it is easier to find a unicorn than to find a church that has all their children's ministry volunteer spots filled. So, Caleb, <laughs> you want to start off? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Hi, so I'm Caleb. If you don't know me, I'm the music director here. And um, so in our ministry here for worship and tech, we have great big needs of people running sound for tech and doing live stream um, just to keep us keep going. And just uh, we have some amazing volunteers back there already. So just to give them a little bit of a break and just um, 
if you are an enthusiast in tech or you like sound or anything like that and you're willing to learn, we would love to have you. And we will teach you how to run it, how to do everything. And we're going to be advancing that, upgrading that, making it easier for volunteers. And up here on stage, we are looking for musicians. So drummers, keys, vocalists, anything, really. Uh, maybe not the oboe. So if you play the oboe, I'm really sorry, but I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but, so I will, if, if you've been here for a while and maybe you used to be on the band, come talk to me. Or if we've talked already, great. Just let's make sure I have your info. Or if you're maybe a newcomer and you're looking for some place to serve, worship ministry is a great place for that. And so if you play an instrument or sing, let me know. All right, thank you. Lisa? A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to lead a uh, session of a Bible study we're running this summer for elementary age girls. And um, that Sunday, we were talking about God's purposes for our lives. And it was awesome. The kids had wonderful, insightful things to say. And I walked away just, oh, this is good. I want every kid in Linworth to have an experience like what the kids at this Bible study were having. Um, but there are two things that we need to address in order for that to happen. Um, number one, right now we're operating within an extremely narrow staffing margin behind the scenes administratively, um, which really limits our capacity to move uh, our ministry forward. So. If a volunteer gets sick or goes on vacation, if new families come, or even if we have a high attendance day for our regular attenders, we don't have the staffing capacity to handle these normal, and they're all good, except for the sick part, um, uh, situations. And so we have to modify our lesson, we have to close a classroom, and, and we don't wanna do that. So um, the, the other thing is we've, are, especially in the elementary age, we need to get our class size smaller. Um, we have kindergarten through fifth grade together at this point, and that helped us stay afloat during COVID. And some cool things have come from that, but we can't stay big all the time. There's a big difference between a kindergartner who's learning to read and a fifth grader who can definitely read and write and can talk about more abstract things. And so we need to get the class size smaller. Um, these challenges stem from the same basic problem. Do you know what that is? <laughs> we need more volunteers. So to, just to give you some idea, um, in the winter of 2020, before the pandemic hit, we had 108 kids we were regularly serving um, from birth through fifth grade. And our volunteers generally served once a month, and we had a monthly team of about 75 people. So. This spring, we were serving 116 children. We weren't operating an infant nursery, so we started from 12 months through fifth grade, and we had a, a volunteer team of 59 people. So in case you didn't quickly do that calculation in your head, <clears throat> um, that's a 27% reduction in teachers and about a 7.5% increase in students not calculating the infants. That makes the calculation worse. 
So anyway, an investment of just two hours a month in a classroom or behind the scenes would make a dramatic difference in what we could do with our kids. Our pro screening process is online. You serve once a month. You're with a team of people that help you. You don't have to get supplies or plan anything. No, crazy talk, I'm serious. All you have to do is read the lesson and then show up and let God work through you. So come talk to me after the service. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have any threats or mathematical <laughs> equations, but I can confidently say we have the best snacks out of all three ministries. No, but in all sincerity, uh, high school is a hard time for people. Middle school is a hard time for people. I became a Christian when I was 15. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, and it's a variety of situations, you know, school environment, home environment, not understanding what's right in front of you, so on and so forth. And it's literally because of my youth pastor and the youth volunteers that I am here today. Uh, I remember their names. I remember their faces. I, I, the only person that I keep in contact with is two people I talk to regularly from my hometown. One of them is my youth pastor. Um, shout out Ryan Irwin. He'll never see this. I don't know why I said that. Um, but it's an important and an, it's an incredible time. And our kids are having the same conversations and the same questions that everybody else is having. But a lot of times their biggest influence is their friends, or what they choose to see. And so as leaders of high school ministry, we have an incredibly unique opportunity to root them in truth. Now, obviously I'm not saying all their friends are bad, but maybe their friends don't have the entire picture. They don't have the experience. They don't have the, you know, the hindsight of 2020 that we have having graduated from high school and middle school. So it's an incredible opportunity. And I'm sure some of you may know our youth group is on Saturday nights. We don't need you to come every single Saturday night. Uh, for three hours a week, you can get invested. And uh, no, but we have, we have opportunities. Uh, our middle school meets on Wednesday nights. We have discipleship groups. Uh, we're looking also for like chaperones for big events, things like that. So uh, ask me questions, let me know, email me, uh, call me. My number is 814-602-0784. That number once again is 814-602-0784. Right, do they get Ginzo nice with that after? Okay, no, see. <laughs> okay, so real quick, we, uh, we need to get going. Um, after the service, we have a little mini uh, service volunteer fair in the fellowship hall. So if you're at all interested, you just want to ask some questions, we have food. We have sandwiches back there for you to come on, and when you can, we'll have tables of each of the ministry leaders. You can talk to them, ask questions. Please come back and just kind of see what this is all about. We really, truly do need you. And... Uh, Next up, I'm going to invite Chris up one more time, and he's going to uh, uh, introduce our special speaker today. All right. Thanks, Rich. Well, um, we've got a guest speaker with us this morning, and uh, we're thrilled to have Andy Gray with us from the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. Uh, Andy has pastored uh, within our family of churches for 25 years uh, in 2003 in South Minneapolis. He planted the Urban Refuge. Um, Andy and a co-worker um, are attending a conference here in Columbus, and it gave us the opportunity to have him speak. 
Andy has a real passion for cultivating harmony in our divided communities and our fractured churches. I got that right off the website. <laughs> That's why it's, 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 it's said so eloquently. Um, so a few years ago, he, or actually probably less than that, about a year ago, Andy resigned from his role as the pastor at Urban Refuge and started a nonprofit, uh, a ministry called Catalyst for Harmony. And the purpose of that is accelerating biblically rooted and gospel-fueled discipleship in racial harmony to promote greater unity in the body of Christ. And Andy's really done some amazing things. I have had a chance to hear a lot of his stories and uh, just some of the work they've done. They're in Minneapolis uh, in connecting urban, suburban churches, in connecting black and white pastors. It's been phenomenal. And, uh, and it's really been an incredible witness to the entire city of, of Minneapolis. Andy's been married to Laura for 30 years. They have three children. Uh, this morning, uh, we asked him to, he's going to actually stay in connection with our series, Conversations with Jesus. His text comes from John chapter 9, uh, when Jesus heals the blind man. And the specific message we asked Andy to talk about this morning is the quality of discernment and, and how much we need discernment today. There is uh, such an avalanche of news and it feels so chaotic. It comes from every direction. Uh, there's all these competing agenda laden narratives. How do we biblically discern through this? Discernment is a way of seeing that's biblically rooted and it will bear fruit and the fruit that it will bear, it will help us in the church to interact with one another with greater wisdom and truth and grace and humility. And it will also help us to interact with our uh, non-Christian neighbors with truth and with empathy. So I think Andy's talk is going to really move the needle in helping us be a church, as I was praying this morning, to be a church that becomes more effective of being in the world, but not of the world. And that's where we want to be. So let's give Andy a really, really warm Linworth welcome. Man, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that message, the promise of what's coming with that. You set the bar up there pretty high. Uh, well, hey, I really appreciate uh, being with you. And I know uh, even bringing up that uh, this person is going to talk about stuff that might hit on racial dynamics, uh, maybe already set a few of you on needles, or maybe the hair has gone up on the back of your head and you're wondering, where is this going to go? What's this going to be about? Let me give you my overarching umbrella here. As Chris said, I have a relentless passion for oneness and unity. Because I believe Jesus does too. In fact, in the New Testament, every single book in the New Testament addresses unity and oneness. God calls us to live in harmony, Romans 12, 16. And what I think he's getting at there is a, it's a mindness of the soul, of, the, of your being. And it means to affect your affections, your conscience, and your will. That's the way you feel, the way you think, and the way you act towards your neighbor. The scripture tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's not just one facet, it's our whole being. 
What if we take that, and I think it's appropriate to say, and love your neighbor like that, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your being. And so we have to consider how we live with one another in so many areas, in the context of your family, your workplaces, in the church, especially when we say loving one another is to be one of our greatest testaments, our witnesses of, of the reality of who Jesus is to the world, but we're doing so in places of tension and division. I think it breaks God's heart, breaks my heart. So what I wanna to talk to you uh, about today is discernment, and I think that lands a little bit in that uh, conscious place, that what you think and how you think about things. And as Chris said, we have this avalanche, this myriad of content coming at us from the palm of our hands to the television screens to friends to all different kinds. We're just bombarded with all different kinds of perspectives and discernment is critical. It is really necessary. Consider this passage though from Proverbs, which is called a wisdom book because it's filled full of wise expressions that help guide us and move us how to live in a, in a greater uh, sense of capacity and wise thought that we demonstrate and carry out in our relationships. And it says this in Proverbs 26, four and five, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. Very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly and he'll be wise in his own eyes. Like, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to answer or not answer? Is that your dilemma? You ever face that on social media? Hmm, do I enter in or not? Do I read the comments or not? Do I open my mouth or not? Do I say what I think or what I feel or not? And we have all kinds of complexities and dynamics that are going on and it really takes discernment and, and I imagine you can feel the tension in this passion, pa uh, passage alone. And there have been situations, of course, that have uh, risen up <clears throat> in our context and hit the news and big stories come on and, and it produces tensions and emotions and feelings and we have to wonder, what do we do? And there's risk associated with our action. Some things are really easy to discern, like there's a load of dishes that are all dirty on the counter. They probably should be washed before I eat off them. Ah, that's not hard to discern. But it's input that you take and then you make a decision based on what you understand or see, right? Other dynamics are gut-wrenchingly difficult. Several nuances and options to consider and one course of action could be a good outcome, but it may upset a whole group of people. Real and lasting consequences can be hanging in the balance. And so we need discernment on what to do. I like this, Mark Laberton wrote this. He said, discernment is a bold and daring endeavor that requires a risk. It's an act of faith, not of certainty. Anything you want me to do to adjust this so that we don't get that ringing, let me know. Um, either that or it's the Holy Spirit speaking to all of us. <laughs> Discernment, it's a bold and daring endeavor. It's not a precise science. Understanding the right thing to do at the right time and in the right way is not a formula. We have to be dependent on the Spirit, dependent on God to give us discernment. 
Now, when a person is said to be lacking discernment, who likes to be that person? <laughs> Nobody wants to be a person lacking discernment, but we know people in situations where like, oh, that was, you really lack discernment in that moment. It often means they aren't giving enough thought to their choices, but it can also mean that someone is so entrenched in their thinking, they're unwilling or unable to consider the possibilities of what might be the best thing to say or do or feel or what the path forward might be. We see this happening when it comes from everything to interpreting scripture. People can be entrenched in that. To conversations about racial dynamics, people can be entrenched there. Uh, And certainly in the political realm, people can be entrenched there. So tied to a particular perspective that even when presented with some uh, contrary information or something that's incongruent, it's just incredibly hard to process and discern. So there's vulnerabilities that hinder our discernment, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. And one of them is context. Context is the blend of life, experiences, and culture that shape the lenses of how we see God and how we see others. Now, we like to think that we come to life, to relationship, to the scriptures, and even to God himself free of context. We kind of think we're objective. And from the place that I see from, I'm totally objective. I strive to be objective. And I think that person is really subjective. (laughs) But we're really sure. I I had a friend one time, we were talking and having a conversation. He said, I could be wrong, but I'm sure I'm right. (laughs) Uh, Do you see see any tension there? No one, nothing really exists from a context free place. We're shaped by all kinds of things. Chris and I were talking this morning, I was telling him about an accident I had uh, when I was driving down a country road on a motorcycle and a deer popped out in front of me. Bam, hit the deer. The deer died by the grace of God. I didn't know Jesus then. Uh, I didn't even fall off the bike. Yeah, miracle. Uh, And I I got sticks in my notes, so I'll go too long. Um, But I can tell you, now every time I drive down that country road, I have been impacted by what happened in that moment. I feel things, I have concern, I'm increased awareness, all kinds of dynamic because of what happened, it shaped me. My family was riddled with divorce. That shaped my context, my thought about marriage and concerns and fears and all kinds of things. We're constantly influenced by our context. I like this quote. The reality is our social context intersects with our spiritual context. This is often a dilemma because our social experience is, or I would say can be, thicker than we think. While our spiritual experience can be, quite often, thinner than we think. The thick blanket of economics, geography, culture, language, ethnicity, and education surround us such that it can become our principal context rather than our life in God and our life with God's people. We can be shaped by a number of different things. And I think actually God designed us that way, to be in relationship, to be influenced by one another. That's what discipleship is all about in a big way, right? How we are influenced and shaped and moved as we live in relationship. 
and God's call to live in the context of relationship, he designed us that way. You know, he created us in our image. The Lord created us. Talking about the Trinity. So the challenge is sometimes we think we're not really affected by that, and we are. So let's get into our text that we're going to talk about this morning in John chapter 9. Jesus encounters with his disciples a blind man, and he's going to heal him that we'll see. And various people are there when it's happening. And they, there's this inputs that are happening, these observable different dynamics, but they come to different conclusions. They discern differently all through the process. So the first group is the disciples. In verse 1 of John chapter 9, it says this, As he went along, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So right off, do you see a dynamic of discernment? He's blind. Somebody sinned. That, that's it. That, that, that must be the conclusion. It was either him or his parents. Jesus, you're discerning. Who was it? <laughs> A or B, right? They started with an assumption. And that's a vulnerability. Anytime you start with a place of assumption, and that's really easy to do. Sometimes we get bits of information and, and it requires discernment to assemble those into wisdom and a path forward. The challenge is the blank spots in between. And assumptions lead us to fill those blank spots in with all kinds of things. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're healthy, sometimes they're problematic. Sometimes they're humble and movable, sometimes they're rigid, entrenched, and prideful. They had a previously determined process for what it means to some, for someone to be blind and weren't considering the possibility that anything else could be going on. They reduced it. Assumption is a guess based on very, very little information. Presumption is a guess, is a guess based on some information. And both of them are a liability to healthy discernment. You have to be really careful. They can be reductionist. They can lack empathy. They lack curiosity. They can easily offend and wound. Can you imagine the blind man hearing the disciples say that? That the first thing you say about me coming up, you don't know me. You've never had a conversation with me. And the first thing you say to this rabbi is who sinned, me or my parents? Can you feel the weight of how that would feel to somebody? Man, well, thanks for having a little empathy for me not being able to see. <laughs> Good grief. It can be very hurtful. If you're someone that is quick to make decisions, you have to recognize this is a vulnerability for me. If somebody has ever said to you, man, you, you sh you're sure jumping to conclusions pretty fast. Time and curiosity are on your side. Embrace them. Slow down. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Develop a pattern and a, a, a habit, a discipline of asking some questions. What is your name? Might be a good place to start in this situation. <laughs> Right? Tell me about your life. 
What's your experience been being blind? What have you encountered not being able to see? Do you see what can happen there? Instead of starting with assumption and a decision and a judgment, it starts with curiosity and questions and patience. Jesus answers them directly. Neither this man nor his parents sin. Uh, don't. <laughs> you know, I imagine the disciples are like, oh, man, did it again. <laughs> but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. What's the song we just sang? Even when I, what? Help me out, Caleb. (laughs) Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. That is who you are. So in any encounter that you come to, they were asking the question, who's the problem? Whose fault? Jesus is like, you're not asking the right question. The question, maybe the most important one for us is, how is God going to work in this? Where is he working? What is he doing? What is he longing for? He's at work. It's always, Jesus tells us, it's, we have to do the work and I'm doing it. I'm always about my father's work, he said. You ever heard the expression, the Holy Spirit is either doing, is doing two things, either trying to get into a life or trying to come out of a life and express himself. Where's the spirit? What is the spirit? And, and pausing and praying, God, where are you working? Where are you working? Help me to see that so I can join in what you're doing in this situation. We need spiritual eyes to see beyond what's just in front of us. How does he want to bring light to this situation? He's the light of the world. It's the hope of the world. Have you ever heard the phrase, putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable? The blind man did not serve as a demonstration for the impact of sin. Rather, all of us serve as a demonstration of the possibilities of the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Big difference. Such a different perspective. What are we looking for? Are we looking for fault and blame? Are we looking for hope in Jesus in every situation? The emphasis is on God's glory through the possibilities of his mercy, his grace, and his love. And we need to do well to focus our discernment of action and thought and affections toward that hopeful outcome and movement of Jesus. Now, even if temporal consequences are part of a necessary action, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't painful things that happen. It doesn't mean when you, there are times when you discern and like, yeah, we're gonna have to make this hard decision. There's truth that needs to be talked about. There's, there's consequences for decisions and things that happen when we're discerning. This is a path forward and it will be painful, but still on the other side, we're hopeful. The Holy Spirit brings conviction in our life, not condemnation. Jesus heals him, and he, you know, chooses this 
combination of dirt and saliva and <laughs> tells him to go wash in the pool. I don't know why that happened. There's, there's probably, we're not gonna talk about that today. I will say this though, sometimes Jesus makes crooked what we wanna make straight. And we think it should just be like this. And Jesus could have just spoke healing, right? He could have just said, you're healed. Open your eyes. But he required him to go through this process, this strange dynamic and you know, he didn't see, he didn't, you know, like, hey, uh, the disciples then come along and say, hey, maybe we should all like, get ready to spit. Jesus is going to do something. <laughs> Sometimes you have to expect the unexpected. The next group of folks we see are his neighbors. And these are the folks that knew him his whole life. In verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then when your eyes opened, they demanded. They were stuck. They were stuck in a paradigm and this is what I talked earlier about. Entrenched views can be a significant hindrance to discernment. Paradigms can stifle creative imagination and skew the view of how God is at work. And someone stuck there says, no, this is the way God works. He always works this way. It's always done this way. We don't need to do anything else. That's what it is. That's what I know. That's what I understand. That was the impression that I had. And so this must be what it is. How could it be anything different? That's a place of entrenchment. That we can't consider the possibility of any different way. And the neighbors were like, this is how I see and view you. How could it be your eyes are opened? How could it be that there's more to this account, this story, your personhood? You're just the beggar on the street. That's all you are. That's all you will ever be. I remember feeling stuck in our marriage as I talked about, you know, divorce was riddled in my family lineage. So I was really hesitant about getting married. But God did this thing, you know, how he kind of does a thing and he makes crooked what <laughs> I wanted to make straight and uh, led me to get married. And the first two months were amazing. <laughs> the next two years were not, were the opposite of amazing. You know, it's like some people say, oh, you know, I came into the relationship and I had a backpack. We had like six bags each and just brought them right in. All kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of poor communication and tension and differences on on everything. She grew up with three girls and I'm not a girl and we just, we just communication, we had all these issues and, and I, yeah, I mean, I just had loads of junk. And I remember coming to the conclusion, Lord, I know you don't want divorce, so uh, you can take one of us home now. <laughs> and humbly, Lord, I don't care who it is. <laughs> but it needs to be me? Okay. 
<laughs> I was stuck in like, this is going to be the rest of my life, a bad marriage. And the only way out is, uh, you know, until death do us part. That would be a sad way to live, wouldn't it? A very entrenched place to live. We were getting coaching and counseling, and what was happening is my wife was changing and shifting and moving, but I was stuck in a place of that's what it's like, and so anything that would trigger those things in our relationship, oh, here we are again, here we are again, here we are again, not seeing that, you know, sometimes I think marriage or a relationship or trying to work in harmony is a little bit like when you look close up, it looks like this. It's up and down and up and down. And when you're down here, it feels horrible. But when I step back and look at a bigger picture, it's a little bit more like this. The problem is when you're on the downside up here, it feels like right here. And I, but I was stuck here. Like this is what it is and it will always be. And the Lord struck me with Isaiah 43:18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I'm doing, see, I'm doing something new. Now it springs up, making a way in the desert stream in the wasteland. Do you not perceive it? I'm at work. Your wife is changing, transforming. And you are assigning her a place in your heart, in your affections, in your conscience, in your will. You have determined that is who you are. And I had to repent and get on my knees and say, God, you're doing new things. I need to appreciate my wife more and see what's happening. See how you're working. June 27th, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we celebrated 30 years of being married. Yeah. That's uh, two and a half times longer than any marriage in my immediate family. It's a miracle. It's God's work. The neighbors don't know what to do with them. They bring them to the Pharisees. You ever heard that? Pharisees are not, or, or what is it? The Sadducees are Sadducee because the Pharisees are not Pharisee. <laughs> Got to throw a dad joke in there. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees had a, had a hard time with discernment sometimes. Jesus had probably some of the harshest words that he spoke in the New Testament were to this group. So they bring him to the Pharisees, the man in verse 13 who had been blind. And now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this, is not, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. See, they were stuck in a procedural paradigm. They were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. They were so focused. Wait a minute. Jesus told you to do work on the Sabbath? by making mud and putting it on your eyes and washing. That's kind of work. That's work, and it's on the Sabbath. They were so focused and concerned about that that they were missing. Hey, I 
can see. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't see. Like, uh, and you're worried about making mud? That's what you're focusing on? And see, when you get entrenched in procedure, it is a recipe for legalism. And that hinders our discernment. As I said, Jesus had some harsh words for him in Matthew 23, 23 and 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. That is focusing and zeroing in on procedures rather than what is the work of Jesus and he's doing here. What are the important things, the big picture things that he is calling us to do? What does love look like in this situation? What does justice look like in this situation? What does mercy look like in this situation? What is understanding? What is moving towards God's picture of harmony and his call for us to live in oneness? How do we put our emphasis towards those things Instead of focusing on all of the procedures, straining on the gnat, but swallowing a camel, what is the weightier matter here? That should be our prayer. God, when these things are complex, when they're nuanced, when they're difficult, God, what's the weightier matter here? What are the things that we should really focus on? What's important? What's the most important here? The Pharisees were struggling with even believing he was healed. And because they're stuck in that place and they're concerned about procedure and other things that we'll see, um, their strategy seems to be, how do we discount this person's story? How do we ignore the reality of what he's doing? We don't wanna deal with this disruption. I think it's interesting in verse 17, it says, finally they turn to the blind man like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> This is what we do in complex situations sometimes. They didn't talk to the person that it was actually happening to. They were talking about him even when he was around. And we talk to others sometimes without talking to the person involved in the situation. Do you see the risk in that? Versus going to the person that's really involved, feeling the way, impacted by a situation and talking with them. Finally, they turned to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. Uh, when he said that, <laughs> they did not like that. What do you mean he's a prophet? We're the prop, we're the, you know, we're the, we're the, all of that, and a bag of chips, we're that, we're, we're the power here, we're the, we're the leaders, we're the ones that should be listened to, we're the experts, we're the authority, we're the ones that decide who somebody is a prophet and if, they're, if they aren't, that's our call, that's not your call, and they were bothered by it. And because if it were true that he was a prophet from the Lord, that was going to be really disruptive to what they had going on. They had a system, an ecosystem, 
all kinds of things that were tied to that dynamic that provided them consistency, security, comfort, accolades, a variety of different things. I will say this, power can be incredibly blinding. And the temptation to protect an institution or a person in a position of power causes tremendous problems. If you're in a position of power, you're a leader, you're, you own a business, um, you're a parent, like there's all kinds of dynamics of what power looks like. And, and power is, is not a negative thing. It's something to be stewarded, just like money, just like wisdom, just like talents, just like all kinds of things. It's to be stewarded. And power can be used for wonderful things. And power can be used for destructive things. It's neutral. But you have to understand, how do I use this in a way that's congruent with the kingdom of God? If you have a boss that, like, man, our company makes great things, big impact, we pay people well, but we treat our employees like they're dirt and we speak to them that way, and they can't say anything because I sign the paychecks. That's a problem. That's a poor stewardship of power versus someone that's in that position that is, I'm looking out for the well-being and I honor the dignity of every person that I work with. Even though I sign their paychecks, they might not even know it if they didn't know who I was because of how we interact. Yes, sometimes I have to make hard decisions, but I do it in love. I do it in trying to be congruent with the values of the kingdom of God and the likeness of Jesus' character. I will say this, when it comes to protecting organizations or institutions, I believe God's greater desire is a restoration of individual hearts towards him than it is towards preserving an organization. I'll let you chew on that one. Institutional protection is, is something that we fall into. That can be, can be really problematic because sometimes you just have to deal with the mess. And it's messy. But if, if things are walked through in humility in those situations, honesty, integrity, transparency, then people generally accommodate the mess. If you can be open and honest and transparent and humble about it, even though it's hard, difficult, messy, impactful, trust can be restored. Individuals can be restored. That's the hope. They take another means of discrediting the man, the miracle of Jesus, they bring in his parents now. Verse 18, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind. Okay, so, well, you're blind, but now you see... We don't even know if you're blind. Specifically, we don't know if you're blind at birth. Let's bring his parents in here and check on him. And uh, <clears throat> so they bring him in. Did he receive sight until they sent for the man's parents? Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? So what are they doing here? You ever heard of the uh, term confirmation bias? 
Let's look for someone that agrees with my opinion already. Who can I find to talk to? Oh, that person will agree with me. Um, hey, Chris, I know you agree with me, but I need to get some counsel on this situation. <laughs> here's what I think I should do, and uh, here's what I'm pretty sure you think I should do, and am I right? <laughs> yes? Oh, well, thank you for your help. Uh, hey, uh, I got some counsel, and uh, you know, they just agreed with me. <laughs> So that's what they were doing. Uh, maybe his parents will agree with us and, and we can, we'll see it was a little bit of an intimidating uh, aspect that they were going after. Um, you know, it, we have to ask God for a purity of heart when it comes to discernment. Like God, help me not to be entrenched. Help me not to be so sure of, that I'm right <laughs> that I, I can't be open to something. What's the truth? What's really going on? The parents responded, and they had some things hindering their discernment, too. Maybe you can see it here in the text. Um, in verse 20, uh, we know he's our son, <laughs> uh, and we know he was born blind. It, like, it, it seems like I'm being really careful here. I don't want to. But how he can see or who opened his eyes? You don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That's why the parents said he's of age. Ask him. They wanted to be innocent of anything associated with their son. I've been learning a lot about uh, culture and, and how influence, influential culture is. And um, there's, I think there's three big cultural frameworks in the world. One is innocence and guilt, and that's very predominant in the West. Maybe you've heard this, another is honor and shame, and that's more Eastern dynamic. And then there's power and fear. And that can be in all kinds of places in different spaces. In America, especially because we're very individualistic and we have this undergirding framework of uh, innocence and guilt, we, we really want to be innocent. You know, what happens when there's a car accident? Hopefully, as people get out of the car and it's not a tragic one, the first thing people ask if they're decent human beings is, are you okay? Sometimes they don't. <laughs> you can watch YouTube videos on that. Uh, What's the very next thing that get asked that, that is discerned? Whose fault? Whose fault is this? Who's to blame? Who's guilty? Who's innocent? And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it was my fault. But a lot of times it's not like that. And our whole insurance system is set up on well, who is at <clears throat> fault. Even though we have no fault insurance, we still find out who's at fault. And then different companies have to pay for it in different ways. In another context, there might be an accident, and who was at fault really is far less relevant than whose honor would it be to pay for the repairs? Who would feel shame if they had to carry this burden? And someone might say, oh, it, it would be my honor to pay for this. And for us, we're like, what? Oh, whose fault is it? That's who pays. It doesn't matter if it's honor or shame or they can pay or not pay. 
Who's at fault? So these things shape us when we don't even realize it. And, and I think they had a bit of that dynamic. I want to be innocent, but I think they also had a dynamic of power and fear. You see, they understood their testimony in this situation, and they were really asking about, was he blind at birth, and now he can see, and who did it? It wasn't even confessing, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and he's the way of self. Like, they weren't even on that place yet. They were just like, who healed him? And they didn't want to touch it because they were afraid of what would happen to them if they did. And I want to say this, fear is one of the most potent motivators for how we act in our human interactions, in our relationship. And it is a major stumbling block to healthy discernment. Fear is so powerful, and we need to ask God for the courage to stand with those in those situations and, and not let as we discern what needs to happen, what needs to go forward, how to have a conversation, how to grasp complexities and nuance and, and enter into these places I've been maybe afraid to, maybe like I got hit by a deer on a motorcycle going down that, and I, I tried to have a conversation before and I got slammed, and I'm never going to have a conversation again. And that person will always be that in my mind. God, give us the courage. Give me the courage to enter in with humility and grace and say, can we talk? Can we have a, a conversation and, and work at understanding? Proverbs 24, 3, by wisdom, a house is built through understanding. It's established. Hearing someone, understanding them is so important. I think being heard is one of the most uh, integral necessities of our humanity. It doesn't mean I always, somebody always has to agree with me, but can you hear me? Have you heard me? Have you understood? And fear really messes that up. So we can't dismiss ourselves from the ardent work of discernment, even when it's complicated and full of fright and fear. John uh, 9, 24, a second time they summon the man who had been blind Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. What? You know this man is a sinner? How do we talk about Jesus? He's the sinless, you know, lamb of God. No sin. And here they are professing, we know. We're so sure. We need humility. Oh, my goodness, we need humility. There's some things we know. We don't know everything. Can't see everything. You know, do, do this with your hands right, right, right now. Do this real quick. Put your hands up like this. And just move them back and stop when you can't see your hands anymore. At best. Some of you got really good peripheral vision. You can put your hands down. You might get to 60%. Like, oh, I can go back. I'm back of my head. <laughs> the moms are like, I got eyes in the back of my head, kid. Don't you think about it. You can't see pretty close to half of your existence around you. When you're walking through the world, at best you can see half. What would it mean in humility to say, I can't see it all? I can't, I, I, half, maybe I can see half. I need people that love me and know me, that have different perspectives. If I were to bring a chair up and sit it here and I had someone stand on top of the chair and say, what do you see? Oh, I see lights, I see people, I see a soundboard, I see a screen, I see all, all these kind of things. 
if another person was sitting on the floor right behind the seat, tucked in, and I said, what do you see? Oh, I see this grayish kind of shapey thing. I see, you know, somebody's dope shoes. Uh, <laughs> you know, who would be telling the truth? Both of them. Are they seeing the same thing in the moment? Seeing totally different things. They could be in the same place. Like we're at Linworth Road Church. We both agree on that. That's true. We're in a building. That's true. There's some lights on. That's true. The floor's got carpet. That's true. But what do you see? I see this. But I see this. Both can be true at the same time. So what happens if the person standing up says, let me come down. Let me, let me sit on the floor. Let me scooch in here. Let me take a look. Dang, you're right. It is. Look at that. It's, the chair's all flecky. Wow. I never noticed those threads before. I've never seen that. I never took the time to consider that. Hey, come up on here. Check out the top of this. I'll make some room for you. Let's stand on the chair. Hey, look at that. There's people here. <laughs> our context shapes our vision. Our vision shapes our discernment. God, help us see. Give us eyes to see. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, yo, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they ask him, what did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? He's like, yo, <laughs> I told you I already, I told you already, and you didn't listen. You don't want to listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? <laughs> Yeah, how'd they take that? <laughs> the man who was blind was now seeing clearer than everyone else. And God was giving him a courage to testify to the power of God at work and not be intimidated. That insecurity, intimidation, they can be a huge part of problem, uh, making our discernment problematic. But he stuck what he knew to be true about Jesus and what he was doing. Reminds me of uh, 1 Timothy 4.12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Faith is more about walking in the truth that we do know and less about the things that we don't know. We just don't know everything. We won't know everything. And I think God gets glory when we just walk in simple faith and say, here's what I know. Here's what I know so far, and I'm trying to do it. But I can tell you, that guy helped me to see, change my life. And I am not going to be shy about that. And I'm not going to let you intimidate me to say it's not true. How'd the Pharisees respond? Verse 28, you're right. We need to repent. We're so sorry. We were blind. You're right. You're so right. No, that's not what they did. They hurled insults at him said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses as this fellow. We don't even know where he comes from. Anger can be undoubtedly a hindrance to healthy discernment. And they were angry. They were offended. They were put off. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen, when negativity and insults start rolling out of your mouth, traversing through your mind, you can be sure you are having an issue with discernment. 
That doesn't mean something won't be painful or cause you anger. Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. And the context of that is Ephesians 4, which is saying, let every word that come out of your mouth be beneficial to the hearer. So you can say hard things, but you don't have to be derogatory towards someone and diminish their dignity and their value by speaking and insulting them. You are not a discerning and wise person in that moment if that's what's going on. You may be right, but you are not discerning and wise. Pray this, Lord, help my anger not to lead. Anger is an emotion that God gives us. I think it's purposeful to move us to action when we otherwise wouldn't, but boy, it has to be stewarded, yielded to Jesus, congruent with the heart of God and Christ-like. Verse 30, the man answered, Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened me up, my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Like He's like, I know some things too, bro. <laughs> he listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Like, who does that? Nobody does that. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything. He, cannot, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, <laughs> you're right. We're missing it. No. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They're so defensive that they insulted. They you know, attacked his dignity as a human being and they tossed him out. So this is what the world does right now when it comes to complex issues. At best, and people think it's really mature to say, well, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree. And then I'm gonna go over here and live my life and I'm gonna have nothing to do with you. Versus, I hear you, I see you, I understand where you're coming from. I've, I've got down on the floor and looked at your perspective. I've climbed up on the chair. I'm seeing what you're seeing. I, under, I understand where you come from. I care about you. I care about us. I want to keep going forward in our relationship. I have to tell you I disagree about this perspective or this is part of the path forward or what we should do next or understanding all of this situation. We have disagreement on this. But I don't hate you. I don't need to hate you. I love you. When Romans 12, 16 is live in harmony, you get the context of that? Like there's, there's enemy stuff going on in there, like love your enemy. Like it's not like, hey, live in harmony with everybody that thinks and acts and does everything that you do. No, it's, it's thick with, ooh, you want me to love who? Say what? Huh? <laughs> You're calling me to live in harmony with people I disagree with? And that... that the reality is, if you sit down and have a conversation and you find the common ground of places where, you know, we actually both have a passion for this and we care about it deeply, we're coming at it from different places, but now I understand where you're coming from now, and we don't agree on this part, but 80% of this, we agree on. How can we do something together there? How can we honor God by living the way he taught us to, to live in harmony, to pursue oneness, and unity in Christ, especially among believers. How do we do that? Help us to focus on that. But they tossed him out. The guy spoke truthfully and he experienced the consequences. 
And I think he did so because Jesus was all to him. It was so important to him. And he discerned, my greatest allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ and not to the Pharisees and not to my family and not to my neighbors. It belongs to Jesus. And, and we need to be praying that. God, how do I give my greatest allegiance to you over everything? Our citizenship is where, first and foremost? It is in heaven. So America is below that. Some people don't think that. They're right there together. They're not there together. Jesus has been working all over the world through centuries and millennia before even America was even a concept. The kingdom of God is our key primary citizenship as followers of Christ. And everything else, we can have thoughts and opinions and engagement on all kinds of matters, but it is nowhere near comparison to what am I supposed to do to live congruently as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm an ambassador here for the kingdom first. That changes the game, changes our perspective, changes our agenda, changes our narrative and our purpose. I'm here to represent Jesus. It gives us a greater elasticity. I, I call it holy elasticity. Rooted in the scripture, fueled by the gospel, hoped and aimed at heaven's glory. And because of that, oh, I can, I can stretch and bend. I can come over here and listen and understand and agree and disagree. I can move over here. I can move over here. I can be with this person. Paul said, I try to become all things to all people so that by any means possible, I can lead them to Jesus Christ. We should be pretty elastic if we have our identity rooted in Christ and locked into the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Two last things here. <clears throat> Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. I love that. I added this verse <laughs> just yesterday. Jesus is aware. I don't think he's not absent of, of these tensions and different things going on. And he sees painful dynamics. He, he heard that and he went and he found him. That's our Jesus. He runs after the, 90, the, the one. And he comes and finds us and he hears and understands, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, who is he? <laughs> like, and the man asked, uh, tell me so that I can believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What a great response. The one who couldn't see, now could see, not just physically, but spiritually. And his eyes were getting opened and opened and opened and opened. And his response when he fully understood the work of what Jesus had done and who he fully is was like, man, Jesus, you're amazing. You've given me sight to see. You've opened my eyes and now I know who you are as my Lord and Savior. You deserve everything. Those things, those relationships, those challenges, those difficulties, those disagreements, they mean so much less because I have you. You are my all. Not them thinking like me. That's not my all. You are my all, Jesus. Verse 39, Jesus said, and this is interesting because the Pharisees must have been close by. 
For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. I don't know what all that means exactly. <laughs> Jesus got some wisdom that I don't. But it could mean, if you were conscious of your blindness in a spiritual sense, you would desire illumination about who I am and what's going on here. But clearly you don't, and so you are blind. In the sense, the following words, you would not be guilty of sin, would mean that they would have been open to seeing the work of Jesus. But despite all the evidence that was before them, the reality of Jesus, the power that he healed, this man's response of worship, they refused to repent and they held on to their position. Even when there was clear incongruency with what they thought to be true, it was very evident before them, Jesus himself, they still held on and would not change their mind because they believed what they wanted to believe despite what was in front of them, despite evidence to the contrary. That's what entrenchment does to us. So locked in, like concrete. And we're like, I, I am not moving. My, my feet are buried in and I'm not going anywhere despite all the incongruencies we might see. Jesus was claiming, I think he was hinting, or maybe directly, willful blindness carries a guilt. Someone says, I don't care. I don't care. Ultimately, I, I don't care if that's true. I want what I want to believe, and I don't want that to be changed. That is something that Jesus will hold us accountable for. There's a guilt associated with that. Appreciate you letting me share with you. You can come on up and we're going to worship a little more. And I think that should be our appropriate response when we get our eyes really fixed on what is the work of Jesus and how much when we do that, he helps us discern how to feel towards others, how to think towards others, and how to act towards others. And our affections, our conscience, and our will. And when we get grasp a hold of Jesus, you are all... We should worship, so it's appropriate that we finish with that. Father, help us. God, help us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And to be most concerned about what you are doing, how you are working, and join it. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, we know that you're working because that's who you are. That is who you are. Amen. We
convicted or just felt challenged by what Andy set up here, just I would hope that you would just run to the Father knowing that you'll be met with grace and forgiveness. Just know that if you need anything, you, you come pray with anybody after the service. 
Um, but let's sing about how we know that he's meeting us there with grace and caring and loving for us. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. And I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. And I see it now. I know that I need you I run to the Father Fall into grace Done with a hiding No reason to wait My heart needs a surgeon My soul needs a friend So I run to the Father Again and again and again and again Son for redemption is the price for my heart, and I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand, can't comprehend. All I know is I need you, so I run to the Father.
for speaking to us and imparting his spiritual gift to us. And I particularly am challenged how fear can create that entrenchment in my own life. And I'm really challenged by that. Um, before our benediction here, I just want to remind you again, join us uh, after the service. You can come up for prayer. Um, others of you, encourage you to go back to our fellowship hall and check out, uh, talk to Caleb or to Lisa or to Alex. Enjoy some food together and some fellowship and learn a little bit more about those ministries. But for now, will you raise your hands to receive the benediction? And this, this prayer to me is just perfect for what Andy shared with us this morning. It's a dream of what a church could be. And it's capsulized in Paul's prayer to the Philippians. And let this be our prayer today and our benediction. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that church you may approve what is excellent and so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go and serve. We'll see you soon.